You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 16. In our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we come today to verses 18 through 20. Matthew chapter 16. We'll be looking this morning and this evening at verses 18 through 20, but let's begin reading at verse 13 for some, some context. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask his blessing. It's time of the proclamation of his word. Lord, our hearts are full this morning, full of joy and thanksgiving to you. We rejoice in the opportunity that we have today together with brothers and sisters and to sing praises to your great name as one redeemed people, one people who have experienced your grace and mercy in Christ. And our hearts are full as we've heard the baptism testimonies and heard of your mercy to these in such an individual way. And yet, Lord, what they share in is what we've all shared in. And so in that, as we hear their story and hear their testimony, their confession, we rejoice with them because we know in our own lives, we, your people, know this saving work that they've just given testimony to. And we indeed do love you, Lord Jesus. And we love you not just today, but for forever because of your rescuing, delivering, transforming work in our lives. Now, Lord, as we turn our attention to worship around your word in preaching, we acknowledge our need and we ask for your help because our abilities are not sufficient for the need of this hour. The preacher needs your help this morning, Lord. And we, as we listen together to your word, Lord, we need your help this morning because if you don't teach us, we don't learn. Just as you open our hearts to receive the gospel, so you go on enlightening our hearts by the work of your spirit as we grow in the faith. And whatever we're able to apprehend and take hold of, it's because of your teaching influence in our lives. And so we ask, You would bless it all this day, and may we leave today rejoicing, knowing that 
We've been edified as your people. And Lord, if it would please you, even this morning, would you save someone hearing me who has not yet been reconciled to you through faith in Jesus? Would you save? We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good Bible interpretation requires submission. Good Bible interpretation requires the submission of our will, of our minds, our thoughts, our conclusions, requires our submission to the text of Scripture, to the Bible. You could describe it, therefore, as an exercise in self-discipline, self-restraint. Will we allow the text to say what it says? Will we carefully evaluate the evidence and then with God's help allow the evidence to speak while we occupy the place of the listener, the hearer, the learner? Will we do this without fear of the outcome? I'm not trying to manage the outcome of what the text would require of us, but just let the Bible say what it says and then we will deal with the aftermath of it. We will submit ourselves to the implications of what it says. Will we do all of this with one desire? I just want to know the truth. Whatever is the truth, that's what I want to know. Whatever your word says is truth. And so I want to know the truth. I pray you'll remember this. Good biases still produce bad interpretations. What do you mean by good biases? I mean, you're someone who hates error. You hate false doctrine. You have a love of the truth, and so that's good. But because you hate error, when you come to a text, that if it says what it says, it resembles some error that you're aware of, you begin to mess with the text. You begin to skew it a bit in the way that you handle it. You won't let it say what it says because you're afraid that it sounds similar to something that you know is not right. Or maybe you're even afraid that if you teach what it says, someone might be confused and embrace something that you know to be error. So what do you do? You begin to try to protect the text, forgetting that the text doesn't need your help. The verses that we come to today, I think, represent a text where this sometimes happens. Jesus says to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. And out of the fear of sounding like Rome, out of the fear of somehow diminishing or misdirecting the glory that is Christ alone, I think there are some interpretations of these verses that have been offered that are forced. They sound good on the surface, but... Under close examination, I'm not sure that they hold up. Good biases, but producing bad interpretations. And as a result, what happens is you miss the main point of the verses. What is the main point of verses 18 through 20? I would put it like this. The Lord Jesus will build His church through the proclamation of the gospel by making use of ordinary but redeemed human beings. The Lord Jesus will build His church through the proclamation of the gospel, making use 
of ordinary but redeemed people. And I'll explain this as we go along today. We're going to deal with these verses both this morning and this evening. And as we do, we're going to see five glorious realities about the gospel and the Lord's church. Five glorious realities about the gospel and the Lord's church. This morning we'll look at two. Tonight we'll come back and look at the other three. First thing I want you to see with me is found in verse 18. The builder of the church. The builder of the church. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The first thing we need to note is that the church belongs to Christ. I will build my church. He is the owner of the church. He is the Lord of the church. The people of God are the people of the Messiah. Therefore, they are the people of Jesus. I want you to recognize that when Jesus says this, this is a bold messianic claim. Peter has just said, you are the Christ the Son of God. And Jesus affirms what He just says by saying, I will build My church. Those would be blasphemous words if Jesus was not and is not who He claimed to be. To say that you're going to build your own congregation in a context where the disciples would have understood that congregation to be the people of God is only appropriate if you're God. Christ is saying, Jesus is saying, I will build my assembly, my congregation. And he's talking about the people of God. I agree with John MacArthur when he says that when Jesus speaks of church here, he's speaking in a non-technical fashion. MacArthur says this, Matthew 16, 18 contains the first use of ecclesia, translated church, ecclesia in the New Testament, and Jesus here gives it no qualifying explanation. Therefore, the apostles could not have understood it in any way but its most common and general sense. The epistles use the term in a more distinct and specialized way and give instructions for its proper functioning and for its leadership. But in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus' use of ecclesia could only have carried the idea of assembly, community, or congregation. In describing the inhabitants of heaven, the writer of Hebrews speaks of the general assembly and church of the firstborn, Hebrews 12.23, referring to the redeemed saints of all ages. That seems to be the sense in which Christ uses church in Matthew 16.18 as a synonym for citizens of His eternal kingdom, to which He refers in the following verse. The Lord does not build His kingdom apart from His church or His church apart from His kingdom. I will build my congregation, my assembly, my community. He's talking about the people of God. They are His. My assembly, my congregation, they are His. I think MacArthur's right. The disciples would have heard Him in that general sense. But I also think it's right to say that in this statement, Jesus is making reference to something that had not yet arrived. A new phase in the forming of that people. Throughout the ages of redemption history, the people of God are formed. 
the community of the redeemed brought into existence by the work of God, the power of God, the Word of God. I will build my church. I'll continue to build it. But he's also including in that something that is coming. The church post-Pentecost. The church that can be described as Christ's body. Jews and Gentiles, equal members. The dividing wall torn down. Something not found in the Old Testament. Do you find the community of God's redeemed people in the Old Testament? Of course. But do you find a people in the Old Testament who are permanently indwelt by the Spirit of God? Are they living under the new covenant? No. So the church in that sense, post-advent, post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, post-ascension, post-Pentecost. That's unique. And the church in that sense is a mystery. What we're experiencing right now represents a truth hidden in times past, brought into clear view in our day, brought into existence in our day. Ephesians 3, 4, Paul writes about this. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. I want you to note that. Been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Christ to Peter is talking about a rock, a foundation. You don't lay a foundation in the middle of something. So while the whole people of God, Old Testament and New, belong to Jesus, he's still referring to something that has a new phase, something new is coming that will involve a foundation. Paul writing about this says, this mystery has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, I'm the owner of the church and I promise to build it. He's the builder of the church. So that following the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, a confession only made possible by divine revelation, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. Following that, the very one whom Peter has confessed makes the point that the people of God are his people. He, Jesus, is the Lord of the church. He is the Savior of the church. He is the King of the church. He is the Builder of the church. And He promises to go on building His church. I want you to note this. Our confidence in that promise, our knowledge of that truth, is evidenced by our philosophy of ministry. Do you really know that Jesus owns the church and builds the church? Do you understand how many churches in our day right now across the land suffer? Though we all should know this and believe this, suffer because we don't really know this and believe this. In how many little Baptist churches are God-loving pastors suffering in this morning because the members of that church think they own it. This is our church. We've been here all our lives. Grandma and Grandpa were here before I was here. And we'll be here, preacher, long after you're here. 
This is our church. Dear ones, you know this. Founders Baptist Church, it's not your church. It's not my church. It's not the elders' church. It's Christ's church. He is the owner of this church. And he builds his church. Pastors and churches that don't understand this, the truth that Jesus builds his church will inevitably violate the word of God in their attempts to do what Jesus promised to do. If he's not building it, then who's building it? And if you think we're building it, then what happens? We begin to engage in things, our abilities, our power, our ingenuity, our strategies, trying to build what Jesus promised he builds. We don't build it. We don't need to build it. In fact, whatever we build needs to be torn down. He builds his church. When you don't understand that truth, inevitably what happens, pastors, churches begin to compromise the holiness and the separateness of God's ordained means for ministry, which are actually very simple. Read the New Testament. See what the strategy is for building the church. It is so simple, isn't it? But when you don't believe this truth, you begin to complicate matters. Try to build with your own strategies what only the power of God can construct. Or people exhaust themselves in self-reliant activity, trying to build what only Jesus can build as though He's not at work in our working. People wearing themselves out trying to build the church. If He's the builder of the church, then our task is as simple as this. Will we be faithful to do what He's called us to do? Will we believe Him and then do what He says to do? What has He told us to do? He's told us to make disciples through the preaching of the gospel. He has told us to baptize them in His name. He has told us to teach those disciples all that He's commanded, the full height and depth and width of His Word. Teach His Word in all of its fullness. Feed His sheep. Watch for their souls labor on behalf of their spiritual health and maturity. That's our calling. Be faithful to the Word of God. What He hasn't called us to do is to engage in some sort of popularity contest. Let's impress the world with how winsome we are. That's how we'll build the church. As if Jesus wasn't winsome enough when they hated Him without a cause. You're going to be more winsome than Jesus was? He's not called us to engage in some sort of entertainment campaign. Let's impress the world with our talent and how fun we are. Let's appeal to the natural man's desire for pleasure. That's how we'll build the church. I'll never forget during seminary years sitting down with a very famous pastor in the Houston area and him telling me the key to building the church was the children's ministry. Got to make sure you have a great kids' ministry because if you get the kids, you get the parents. And so churches doing their very best to look like the playground at McDonald's or the children's hospital because that's how you reach people. Not some sort of relational campaign. You know, the spiritual version of the local bar. Come here to find your friends. Come here to feel like you belong. Are God's people winsome? Yes, but in a unique way, by Christ's doing. 
Do we enjoy the things God has called us to? We now know things that thrill our hearts that never used to thrill our hearts because of salvation. Did you look forward to coming this morning? I did too. Where did that come from? That came from salvation, didn't it? I used to dread going to church. I would hate it when our parents would take us to church. I was thinking about that this morning, getting ready. Now we desire to come, don't we? The Lord did that. And we love each other and we care for each other. And this is a place where we belong, but as a member of God's family. It's not natural, it's supernatural. We don't manufacture anything. Christ builds His church. The builder of the church. But then the second thing we see is the building of the church. The builder of the church says something about how he's going to build his church. Verse 18, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I will build my church. Upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This is where our fear of bad doctrine can affect our objectivity with Scripture. We know what the Roman Catholic Church does with this statement. Rome makes Peter a pope. When Jesus gave Simon the name Cephas, which means Peter, by the way, this is not the first occasion when he's given that name. It was long before. When Andrew introduced Peter to Jesus, that's when he was given the name Cephas. John 1.35, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So this is not where Simon is given the name Peter. He's already been given that name. But there's no doubt Jesus emphasizes that name in our verses. And He's doing something with that name. Well, the Roman Catholic Church understands the emphasis to mean that what Jesus is saying is that Peter will be the head of the church. When Jesus ascends into heaven, then Peter is the head of the church, the bishop of Rome, the head of the church. That Christ here is affording to Peter a position, a rank completely distinct from the other apostles. And that every pope who has succeeded Peter, the bishop of Rome, is the head of the church down to our own day. And of course they say that the pope has all these various powers and authorities. We know that's false. We know that's an error. We know that's the doctrine of demons. And in response to the false teaching, what has happened is a teaching has developed around this verse. As I said earlier, it sounds good at first. It sounds good on the surface. One form of it is this. Peter, Petros in Greek, 
is a masculine noun, Petros. When Jesus talks about the rock, upon this rock, it's Petra, a feminine form. And so they say Petros refers to a little rock or a stone, an individual rock. Petra is a massive rock formation. So you have a contrast between the smallness of Peter and this massive rock that Jesus will build his church on. One version of this says the rock is what came out of Peter's mouth, the confession. You're a rock, but the rock upon which I'll build my church is what just came out of your mouth, your confession. Or they'll say Jesus is the one about whom the confession was made. Jesus is the massive rock upon which the church is built. He's not talking about Peter being the rock. He's talking about himself being the rock. He's talking about the confession being the rock. Good biases. Because we know, by the way, one step back, you do understand analogies, metaphors, can be applied to more than one person or in more than one way in the New Testament. There's no doubt, dear ones, Jesus is ultimately the foundation, the rock of the church. He is the chief cornerstone. But there are places, and we'll talk about it in just a moment, where the foundation of the church is not Jesus, but the apostles and prophets, with Jesus being the cornerstone. But these men are described as a foundation for what the Lord Jesus is building. And I believe that's what Jesus is talking about here. Do you notice, if you look on verse 19, I will give you, that's not plural, that's singular, you, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you, singular, bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you, singular, loose on... He's talking to Peter. It seems clear... Let's just talk about what's clear in the verses. It seems clear that Jesus is turning a phrase. What he says involves a pun. Your name is rock, and there's a rock upon which I'm going to build my church. He's talking to Peter. And as I said, all the yous are singular. It seems clear, as it could possibly be, that what Jesus is saying has some reference to Peter himself. And it's also clear that what Jesus is saying has been occasioned by Peter's confession. And that confession was not explained by Peter, but by God. And so if you put this together, what would you have? You would have Peter, now listen, as a leader among those 12 apostles. By Christ's own influence, by Christ's own dealing with those men, Peter took on a leadership role among the 12. All you have to do to see this is read the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. It's almost like the Acts of Peter. You see Peter again and again and again standing at the head as, as the gospel is being preached. Not alone, not alone, but he's, he's a, a leading voice. He is a representative disciple. We see it again and again in the gospels. Where he speaks up, he's the voice. He's the one saying something. Even this confession, that's the case. Get to Acts 13, and Paul becomes the leading figure in the spreading of the gospel in the book of Acts. Christ is turning a phrase. He's referring to Peter. It's occasioned by the confession so that Peter, as the representative of the 12 of the apostles, as the lead spokesman, as it were, Representing the group, you see, not by himself, 
they would serve as the foundation upon which the Lord's church will be built, a foundation that is inseparable from the truth that just came out of his mouth. So it's not just the confession, nor is it the man by himself, nor is it the men by themselves, but the man representing the men through whom the message will be declared. That's how Christ will form this community. He owns it. He builds it. He's the cornerstone. But how's he going to build his church? Through the preaching of the gospel, making use of common but redeemed human beings, beginning with the apostles themselves. I could offer you many sound commentators who see it this way. Let me just give you one, because I think what he says is most succinct compared to the others. R.T. France says this, Peter has declared Jesus' true significance. Now Jesus in turn reveals where Peter stands in the working out of God's purpose. And as Peter's confession was encapsulated in a title, Messiah, so Jesus now sums up Peter's significance in a name, Peter. It was apparently an original choice by Jesus for no other use of Petros or the underlying Aramaic Kepha, Cephas, as a personal name is known before this. Now he reveals why he chose it. It describes not so much Peter's character. He did not prove to be rock-like in terms of stability or reliability, but his function as the foundation stone of Jesus' church. The feminine word for rock, Petra, is necessarily changed to the masculine Petros to give a man's name. But the wordplay is unmistakable. And in Aramaic, would be even more so as the same form Kepha would occur in both places. The wordplay and the whole structure of the passage demands that this verse is every bit as much Jesus' declaration about Peter as verse 16 was Peter's declaration about Jesus. Of course, it is on the basis of Peter's confession that Jesus declares his role as the church's foundation, but it is to Peter, not to his confession, that the rock metaphor is applied. And it is, of course, a matter of historic fact that Peter was the acknowledged leader of the group of disciples and of the developing church in its early years. The foundation stone image is applied in the New Testament primarily to Christ himself, but for the apostles as foundation. Close quote. I think he's right. If you just let the text say what it's saying, and you're not afraid of confusion, and you're not afraid of what it might sound like, Jesus is identifying Peter's role in what he's going to do as he builds his church. Listen, Peter did not understand that to mean that he was the Pope. And none of the other disciples understood it to mean that he was the Pope. Say, how do you know that? Just look two chapters over to chapter 18. Chapter 18, and look at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest? You don't ask that question if Jesus has already identified the Pope. And then go to chapter 20 and look at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him, James and John. Their mother came to him with her sons. 
bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. I want my two boys to have the places of highest honor in your kingdom. You don't ask for this if Jesus has already identified the Pope. You go to Galatians 2, when Peter's intimidated by Judaizers and begins to withdraw himself from Gentile believers, not eating with them. And what does Paul do with Pope Peter? He rebukes him to his face. Now the context, look back at our text, Matthew 16. The context is Peter has just given this great confession. Jesus is speaking to Peter about what his role will be as Jesus builds his church. Peter, the representative disciple, Peter is spokesman for the group. Not Peter isolated by himself, but Peter as belonging to that group of men whom the Lord Jesus will use as a foundation, as he builds his church through the proclamation of the truth that has just come out of Peter's mouth. Christ is the owner. Christ is the builder. How does he build it? Through the proclamation of the gospel. This morning we had the privilege of hearing two precious saints, two dear sisters, give voice to what Jesus has done in their lives. And in both cases, what did they meet with? They met with the Word of God. They met with the Gospel. And through the proclamation of the Gospel, their eyes were open, their hearts were open, and the Lord Jesus claimed them for Himself, having already purchased them by His blood on the cross 2,000 years ago. That's how He's building the church. And yet one reference to sermon and one reference to conversation, the Lord is using common clay jar, but redeemed vessels as his gospel goes forth and he builds his church. And that's what he's talking to Peter about. MacArthur was good on this. He said, it therefore seems that in the present passage, Jesus addressed Peter as representative of the 12. In light of that interpretation, the use of the two different forms of the Greek for rock would be explained by the masculine Petros being used of Peter as an individual man and Petra being used of him as the representative of the larger group. It was not on the apostles themselves, much less on Peter as an individual, that Christ built his church, but on the apostles as his uniquely appointed, endowed, and inspired teachers of the gospel. Because they participated with the apostles in proclaiming the authoritative gospel of Jesus Christ, the prophets of the early church were also part of the church's foundation. Ephesians 2.20 in fact, as Martin Luther observed, all who agree with the confession of Peter are Peters themselves, setting a sure foundation. So the builder of the church is Jesus. The building of the church through the proclamation of the gospel by means of ordinary, redeemed people. We'll come back tonight and look at the other three. Let me just finish this morning by emphasizing what we've seen. Let me drill down on five things and we'll be done. Christ is the owner. Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Speaking to the Ephesian elders, 
Paul reminding them of their responsibility, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You are a blood-bought people who belong to Jesus. Whatever authority we have, it's mediated. It only extends as far as the Word of God. And our calling is to be faithful to the one who purchased the church and owns the church and is the king of the church and the head of the church and the savior of the church and the Lord of the church. As elders, we function under His authority, submitting ourselves to His Word, striving to be faithful to Him by caring for you. That's how the church functions. And it's when elders lose sight of that that they become abusive and controlling. We don't own the church. In fact, we're not even sufficient in our own strength to do what he just called the elders to do. To watch for the church and to feed the church and all the rest. We're not sufficient in ourselves to do any of that. So we have to be confident that the owner of the church is at work in our lives and through our lives to do what only he can do. Second, the whole community of God's people belongs to Jesus, both Old Testament and New. It's not like that the people of God just became His. They have always been His. And throughout that old covenant time period, all of those sacrifices and all of those shadows, what are they pointing to? They're pointing to the one who's going to come and ratify and fulfill everything that's been promised Throughout the Old Covenant era, people were saved in the Old Testament just like in the New. By the grace of God, by faith in God's provision for their sin problem. So when Jesus came into the world, He was coming to offer Himself a sacrifice for all the sins of all of those who will ever be saved. All those Old Testament saints saved in the promise of His coming, He came. All of us now saved as we look back to what He accomplished when He came. He came. Standing at the very center point of salvation history is the Lord Jesus Christ and His blood answers for all the sins of all the ages of all of those who trust in Him as Lord and Savior. Which is why in Hebrews 12, when it says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. He's saying you're coming to the people of God. That people belongs to Jesus. You belong to Him. Which is why, again, good bias. Which is why we are jealous that all praise and all glory and all honor be directed to the only one who's worthy of it. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Third, Christ is the builder of the church. We don't build it. It will never be built by human power, human strategies, human abilities. You understand this congregation, in terms of every genuinely converted person, you are explained by the power of God. But when we know that, it changes how we do ministry. Preach the Word. Be in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. This is our calling. And we do it with confidence and we do it with contentment. What do we need to do to reach the community? 
New Testament ministry. What do we need to do to have a healthy congregation? New Testament ministry. Do what Jesus said to do. Because He is at work in a way that transcends all of us. Making use of us. We're instruments, but we're not the explanation for what He does. He's the builder of the church. By the way, He's the builder of everything everything that has eternal significance, that same confidence needs to belong, for example, to your parenting. Pray for your children, teach your children, but if you think you are going to produce believing children, you're wrong. God's grace will produce believing children in your home. And if you think in your own power and strength you can maintain a healthy marriage, you're wrong. Or anything else you want to put your hand to, we must trust the Lord every step of the way. Fourth, Christ builds His church by means of the message that came out of Peter's mouth. Peter's confession is what we believe. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And and of course, all the truth that belongs to that. That's what we believe. That's what we declare. Peter's confession was not incidental. It was central to what Jesus then identified His role to be in the building of His church. So that our method is the message. What method are you using? The message. We're going to sing the message. We're going to read the message. We're going to remind each other of the message. We're going to preach the message. We're going to teach the message. We're going to apply the message. The message is the method. God's Word is at the head. It is central to everything Jesus is doing in and through His church. If you believe that, would you say amen? Which is why the most important thing for you, your spiritual health and your family, is to find a church that is faithful to the Scriptures. But what is their building like? What kind of auxiliary ministries do they have? All the things people look for in churches, you can tell whether they understand this truth or not. Not just the pastor and the church's leadership, the congregation. Does it understand this? Because as soon as you do, you know what you need. Thank God for the wonderful provision of facilities. Thank God for the building process going on right now. My heart's full of joy over it. But if we didn't have it, we'd be okay. We'd be okay. What we need is Christ and His Word. And finally, Christ has chosen to build that church by means of common but redeemed servants. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There's that analogy, that metaphor used of men. The foundation, the apostles and prophets. Why they're on the ground floor of this new phase, what God is doing with His people. This church was a mystery in the Old Testament, now been revealed. Christ is head, we are His body. At the foundation level, the apostles and prophets who declared this message that just came out of Peter's mouth. Revelation 21, 14, And the wall of the city, the new Jerusalem, the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. God will save His people and then use His people. God will build His church through His church.
He gives us the message, and that's our method. The message is the method. And so, as Martin Luther put it, may God bless us as we all strive to be Peter's. In the sense of what came out of his mouth and his own belief and commitment to it. May God use this church for His glory and for the salvation of multitudes and for the health of His saints. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are full. Thank You for our Savior, our King, our Lord, our Head. Thank You for Your church. Thank You for making us a part of Your church. Thank You, Lord, for Your power that's at work through the simple means that You've ordained because as we see powerful things accomplished with You making use of clay jar vessels, we don't have any doubt about where the power resides. We don't have any doubt about whose working explains it. Thank You for the privilege of all of us being a part of it, but Lord, You are the owner and the builder of Your church. We rejoice in this. We glory in this. All glory be to Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.